0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark.
1: Westminster Seminary, California was founded more than 30 years ago, principally to prepare men for pastoral ministry. We educate students from all across the world to fulfill a variety of callings, but we are still committed to that original vision because pastors, ministers of word and sacrament, have a unique role in the life of the church. It is their office to proclaim the law and the gospel, to administer the sacraments, to lead the congregation, and to minister to the spiritual needs of God's people. The Reverend C.J. Dendalk is a 1990 graduate of Westminster Seminary, California, and he's pastor of Trinity Christian Reformed Church in Sparta, Michigan, where he has served for 25 years. He's also involved with the ministry to the Kent County Jail, a mission to eastern Ukraine, He served as a board member here, and he has mentored a number of our graduates. He's a frequent conference speaker, and we're happy to have him here with us on campus this week as the Dendulk lecturer to speak to our students about pastoral ministry. Hi, CJ, and
2: welcome to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here.
1: We are excited about having you on campus, especially to draw from your experience as a pastor and to try to model pastoral ministry in the time that you're here. Before we do anything, let's get to know you a little bit. Where did you grow up and how did you become a pastor?
2: All right. A big part of my uh, growing up was in uh, Chula Vista, California, south of San Diego. Okay. So you're a native. Well, almost. I was actually born in Grand Rapids, Michigan, but moved out to California in the early 70s when I was maybe four years of age or so. And a big part of growing up in Southern California was in Chula Vista. Did live in Oceanside for two years when my uh, father was serving in the Navy. So then went to uh, Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan and it was there where i was very certain that god wanted me to go into the ministry although growing up had some people point out in church that you should consider that and then solidify that at calvin college but wasn't really sure where i was going to go to seminary so back here in chula vista at a small christian reformed church there we would have pulpit supply every now and then it would be professors from westminster seminary It was just getting started then in San Marcos before the present campus here. And I really appreciated the preaching of the professors there. My mother said, hey, we have a relative, Bob Dendalk, who is up at a seminary that's getting started in Escondido. Called up Bob Dendalk, who is a second cousin of mine. Met him for the first time. And he gave me a tour around Westminster, and uh, it was just very clear to me, this is where God wanted me to study. And so I went to Westminster Seminary from 1987 and graduated in 1990.
1: We just missed each other. Okay. I graduated in 87. So as a young boy, you're thinking probably about a lot of different ways that you could serve the Lord or a lot of different vocations that you could pursue in life. Did you ever consider other kinds of vocations?
2: Yes. At Calvin College, I wasn't really sure whether this ministry thing was where to go as people would saying, you got to do this, got to do this. So I started to take some business courses, but uh, it was just very clear. I wasn't really content there. I was actually kind of miserable. Then I said, okay if you're gonna to go to ministry, you gotta take Greek. So I took an Attic Greek course in college, sophomore year, which usually you don't do that early, and used it as one of many things to say, okay, if this goes well, I'm in the right track. It went well and just continued to pursue that. And then also people in church, elders, pastors, other ones that confirmed gifts to go into ministry. And from then on, I really wouldn't say I considered other things, although deep in my heart, I had other ideas like, well, I'd like to be a police officer or something. But it just came to a point, I came to Westminster and they said, if you can go do anything else, go do it. If you can't and you really got serious with God, then you know you're here. And God has confirmed that over the years.
1: When you were learning Greek at Calvin. Mm -hmm. That really seems to have captured your attention, your affections, your interest. Did you get a chance to work in the Greek New Testament at all?
2: Uh, Not at the college level. Most of it was Attic Greek, and there was a little bit of Koine Greek later on. What fascinated me, even though Greek was very challenging, was as you know all of a sudden the New Testament comes alive in a much deeper way when you can get word pictures and understand how this language is put together and the very choices of words that the Holy Spirit gave to the writers to put down. That I really, really appreciated.
1: You're on campus this week to talk to our students about pastoral ministry, and you're giving us three talks. Mm -hmm. You just so far have given the one, Mm -hmm.
2: and remind us again of what the title was today. The title was Knowing the Grace of the Doctrines.
1: Okay, and tomorrow it is?
2: Feed My Lambs. And then Thursday? The Privilege of Being a Pastor.
1: All right, and so these talks will be available at WScal.edu, and then just search for C.J. Dendalk, C.J d-e-n-d-u-l-k and it will pop right up on the screen and you can hear those talks and if you have trouble finding them you can always call us here at the seminary you have been a pastor now cj for 25 years how has ministry changed during these 25 years
2: scott that's a very good question i would say um well let me just um start off with how grateful I am for the training I had at Westminster because the emphasis in the confidence in the Word of God and the gospel. When I was in seminary here, I read a book by Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And in that book, I remember part of his theme or premises were how the way we receive information is changing radically in our culture from being a reading society to a visually oriented society. And also combined with entertainment, hence amusing ourselves to death. And when I read that, I thought this is gonna be very challenging for pastors because there's going to be a strong temptation to go visual and entertaining together. And I don't know if Neil Postman was even a Christian or not. I don't think he was. But he actually, in that book, mentioned the second commandment of God. And it struck me like he's on to some of the common sense wisdom that God gives us behind this second commandment. And through the years, I've been thankful with all the pressures in ministry is to try to keep up with these cultural mediums and churches radically changing the way they do worship to be the next best thing. And I was just so thankful that, no, preach the word, work hard, study hard, have confidence that the Holy Spirit gave us the word and calls us, equips us, and will help us to preach because faith comes by hearing and hearing by really the word of Christ, Christ speaking through his word to his sheep who hear his voice. So I would say now, Scott, over the years, With social networking and the computer and the internet, which has just exploded, ministry, I would say, has changed in that way. Now, there's a good use and a bad use of it, but you really need to be prayerful, humble, and wise on when and where you use that technology without giving up your confidence
0: in the preaching of the Word and keeping the pulpit there in the sanctuary, I think, is just crucial. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
1: Is it your sense that people are still as able to listen to a sermon as they were when you started?
2: I believe those who are able to do that are those who get the means of grace and the importance of every day. listening to the Word of God. But those who aren't, like in our, you know, just our general culture, no. I think experts will tell you that attention spans are dwindling when it comes to listening to someone speak or lecture, let alone preach. So it's very, very challenging because attention spans due to these kinds of things have dwindled. And I think that would be supported by people even in like teaching professions and callings and stuff. They will tell you how really prepared you have to be on your game, so to speak, because attention spans are very limited i'll give you another example you've probably seen us in restaurants too even with couples going out they hardly even have the visual eye contact i remember <laughs> hey i appeal eye contact it was so important now they don't even look at each other at a restaurant at a table they're just texting each other looking at their social networking devices they don't even have eye contact anymore so even that's been changed over the years it does make restaurants a little quieter <laughs> now Yeah, I guess that's (laughs) strangely. Yeah, I I have gone into
1: places where you'd expect it to be a little noisy and it's almost a library. And of course, you see this white glow in everyone's hand. It's, It's kind of an odd world we're in
2: now. I have to make a confession. There was one time a few years back when iPads and stuff were coming out, I actually saw somebody in the congregation. And not that I'm actually looking while I'm preaching, but I noticed a young person with their computer on their lap and in my mind was thinking, really, I'm preaching and you got your computer out? I'm glad I didn't say something. Afterwards, my wife said, hey, people have Bibles on those things. And I I said, oh, okay. So I'm glad I didn't say nothing. But yeah, these are the new kind of changes that are out there. Well, just to be encouraging, I almost
1: always now, read my Bible in church, either on my phone or my iPad. There you go. And I do sometimes wonder if people think I'm (laughs) playing around, but I have access to so many different texts. I can check... You know, when the minister's reading the text, I can read it in Latin, I can read it in Greek or Hebrew, or and I can check different English sure. translations. Sure. The attraction of being able to do all those things, you know, is maybe more than I, I I can I'm able to resist. But it is a weird thing to look out and instead of seeing people holding Bibles, now seeing them holding iPads or.
2: Yep. So back when we were in seminary days, I had no idea this was coming. Um, Well, nobody did. No. So those are, I would say, a long answer to your question of the biggest changes I've seen throughout the ministry in 25 years.
1: But people are still sinners. Yes. And they still need the gospel and they still need the law. That's right. And God the Holy Spirit is still using the foolishness of preaching. Do you think that's true still?
2: Not only that, absolutely, because God was way ahead of us. He's all-knowing. He knew what we would need. And you know, Scott, I would say too, the communion of the saints is for real. And even though we have all these great devices, you still need a covenant community to grow in grace. Mm. And you need fellowship where people who are sharing in Christ share out the blessings. So, you know, virtual church will never work. Electronic churches will never work because you're not going to have the communion of the saints the same way when it's people to people gathering around the table of the Lord's mercy observing the sacraments that Christ instituted for all believers as a means of grace. You cannot substitute it, never will be, no matter what. Even if you get into robot church, I don't know what's coming in the future. But um. <laughs> That's an odd thing to think about, but, <laughs> but I mean,
1: I, don't know. I, I suppose it's a possibility, right? That's right. They are talking about household robots already. Yes. So who knows? You and I, just in the time that we've had to talk today before sitting down to do this episode, the theme that sort of united our conversation so far has been Heidelberg One. Hmm. Everybody needs to know what is their only comfort in life and in death. Mm -hmm. And uh, you were sharing some stories even this morning, and so the listener will want to go and listen to this morning's talk and then also tomorrow's and, and Thursday's, where you were talking about what it's like to bring the gospel to those who are suffering, in your title today is The Grace of the Doctrines. When people first become Reformed, particularly when they come in from the outside, they're often taken with what we call the doctrines of grace, mm-hmm. and particularly the doctrine of election, sometimes reprobation if they get that far, mm-hmm. you know, free justification, and those sorts of things, that God sovereignly, graciously saves his people. And that's a wonderful deliverance and a wonderful life-changing realization. Mm -hmm. But today you were talking about really, I think, the effect that the doctrines of grace should have on us, Mm -hmm. which gets to the title, The Grace of the Doctrines, which I really like. I think that's a great title because it gets to the consequences of being possessed by grace. So what does that mean, the grace of the doctrines?
2: It means that God, who is amazing in his grace to us, continues to work in our lives. And especially I want to You know, encourage those who are servants in the church and preachers and those called to pastor, that grace is experiential too. It's not just head knowledge. Head knowledge is very, very important. We need to love the Lord our God with our minds, but it's also experiential knowledge too in the sense of heart knowledge, if we could use that head and heart together, is what our Lord is getting at, that we love the Lord our God with all our Heart, soul, strength, and mind. The
1: together. doctrines of grace should make us gracious. Absolutely, and you were giving some examples of ways in which you yourself have learned through difficult circumstances right. to be gracious. Taking someone to the hospital, and you know, burdened with just the reality of the effect of sin and ministry in a very difficult situation. You and I, as pastors, we've sat in some you know, difficult hospital rooms. Mm-hmm. And we've been there when people have left this earth mm-hmm. to go, uh, we trust to be with the Lord. And, you know, it's very important in those circumstances, but really always that the doctrines of grace should so possess us that we ourselves should become gracious.
2: Right, What of the struck me many years ago, Scott, was we were in the inner city of Chicago and we had a youth group mission trip there for a weekend. And across the street from this church in the inner city where we work and there was a crack house, there was also a store that they had for used clothing, and we were helping out in there and so forth. And we had some people come up to our kids and uh, one was a transvestite and our kids were having interactions, wonderful conversations with them and so forth. And I just said to our kids a comment, just talking with them. And I didn't realize how it impacted one of our youth because he got up in front of our church later thanking the congregation. He says, I remember what pastor said to us over the weekend. And he said, you know, if it wasn't for the grace of God in our own lives... We could be in a crack house, we could be in jail, we could be confused about our gender and identity and all these kinds of things. And we always have to remember, but for the grace of God we go, Mm. because we don't even know our own hearts the way God knows them. And, you know, as we teach the Bible, the gospel, the catechism, so forth, this is a very sobering thought, but any crime you read of in the paper, we could commit those. Sure. And that's a stunning thing. A lot of people say, I could never do that. No, you don't know your own heart when you say that. If it weren't for the grace of God, you could. I
1: never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of
0: justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California wscal.edu 888-480-8474 westminster seminary california for christ his gospel and his church by nature every one of us is so
1: intrinsically inherently corrupt that any one of us is capable apart from the grace of god of becoming whatever these kids were seeing on the street or doing whatever these kids were seeing on the street.
2: And things we read in the paper and see on the news and hear on the news. So we shouldn't think, well, you know, those people are disgusting
1: and I'm so glad. Oh Lord, I thank thee that I'm not like this wretched publican,
2: right? And that's why I was choosing this morning the book of Jonah, because, you know, Jonah had a hard time with non-Israelite people and Gentiles, especially the enemy city of Nineveh, and yet God had mercy on them, and God brought repentance in their life, and even a prophet like Jonah was still a work in progress who needed to understand God's grace, even though he knew it in his head. He said it. He confessed. He had a really good profession. I knew you were like this, God. But in his own heart, he couldn't see it experientially when it was right before his eyes through the preaching of the word. He was very angry. He got distracted with personal petty concerns rather than forever people than a temporary plant. And and it's easy to read Jonah for me and get down on Jonah, but God can say, no, that's you too, CJ. You have to learn the grace of the doctrines every day. Yeah,
1: Jonah, I thought, was a very interesting choice. (laughs) And at first I thought, well, you know, what is he going to do with Jonah? But, you know, then as you began to unfold it, it all came into perspective. It made sense. Jonah then really is a great, almost a counterexample of pastoral ministry. Mm -hmm. Because as you were pointing out, Jonah knew that the Lord is gracious. So he didn't want to go to Nineveh. As you pointed out today, you know, we now we're reading about Nineveh in the news. Right. Now, not always in good ways, right? Some very tragic things have happened to Christians in Iraq and here in San Diego County where we are, there's a large Chaldean population, a <laughs> lot of Iraqi Christians. So we're, you know, aware of that. The media is talking about what's happening to the Chaldean Christians in Iraq nevertheless, Jonah knew the Lord, and he knew what the Lord was like, but he did not want the Lord to save those terrible pagans in Nineveh. And he knew if he went and he preached the law and preached the gospel, that the Lord would use that to save people in Nineveh. That's a remarkable thing, that a minister's heart could be such that he really wanted judgment and not grace. And the Lord had to teach him grace. How did the Lord teach Jonah? the reality and his own need for grace where did the Lord put him
2: that's a good question you know really when you look at it as I'm learning it it's amazing how gracious he was in teaching Jonah too because mm-hmm. he sovereignly appointed a great fish to put him in a place where he's not very distracted anymore <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> there's not much to do for three days <laughs> no like- and And, you know, uh, he cries out to God, and he's quoting psalms, and really in a strange way, he actually starts to preach in the belly of that fish. And he's Mm. talking about those who turn to idols, forfeit all this mercy that the true and living God has. And God teaches him for three days in the belly of the fish, and then God is gracious and spares his life and gives him a second opportunity, brings the word. And how long-suffering, patient God is, because here we go back again to chapter 4. It's like we're back to ground zero again with Jonah, and God still questions him. And he talks to him, and he's leading him on, teaching him, are you right to be angry and have this meltdown, Jonah? And then, you know, appoints a plant, a worm, and a shiraka wind, and we really don't know what happens to Jonah.
1: Yeah, there he is in chapter 4. Four, verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. And this makes Jonah very happy. But then the Lord sends a worm destroys the plant. That makes Jonah sad. And then what does the Lord teach Jonah through this kind of
2: odd episode? You know, what's interesting, Scott, is the same Hebrew word in chapter one for the evil or the misery that has come up to God is the same word now in chapter four that Jonah's having over this plant. It's Mm -hmm. amazing how God is trying to get his attention, how he's all about himself for this. Verse 10, it says, and the
1: Lord said, right, this is the covenant name of the Lord, and Yahweh said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, and should I not Pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle, which is sort of an interesting thing to add. I mean, as you were pointing out, the people responded to this preaching, and the Lord reveals his heart, if you will, his intention, his graciousness, that the Lord is not willing to allow this city to perish. And he compels Jonah to go and to preach. Jonah needed to learn to become a gracious minister of the doctrines of grace. So that's really a lifelong struggle, isn't it, for pastors? How often do we maybe come home from a meeting with someone or, you know, a committee meeting or something, and we think, you know, well, why won't these people do A, B, and
2: C? You know, Scott, what comes to my mind, you talked about people from the outside coming to the doctrines of grace and how humbling it is because we realize that, as the book of Jonah teaches us, too, in chapter 2, verse 9, that salvation— belongs to the Lord. Mm. From beginning to end, that's what we learn, right? It's all of God and for the glory of God. In Revelation, that's the ongoing worship and praise. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's humbling. And then when we think of it, let's say as pastors, you know, if God wanted to, he could speak directly. If God wanted to, he could send an angel. If God wanted to, uh, he has other ways, but he chooses to use sinners, save by grace, saved by Christ alone, through faith alone. And every one of us, honestly, are like, God, there's times when we have the Jonah syndrome. Isn't it sad? He wanted to die. Jonah thought it would be better to die. It's like Jonah no, it would be better to live and have compassion. And so we should also be humbled, not only that we're saved by grace, that God would want to call us and use instruments like us to bring this glorious good news.
0: You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
1: Yeah, that's a really important point. When people think about pastoral ministry, sometimes I think they hesitate, and there are probably a variety of reasons for hesitating, but one reason that they hesitate is they think, well, I could never be whatever it is I think I ought to be in order to be a pastor. And to those people, maybe we should read Jonah. God used Jonah. In some ways, we could say, was there ever a worse minister (laughs) in the history of the church than Jonah? A guy who not only didn't want to really announce to these people so that God would save them, but then after it happened, he's still miserable. You know, I mean, the story then just sort of ends. So it's a very interesting and in an odd way and in an unexpected way, encouraging in as much as, you know, this old saying, it's a Dutch saying, God strikes straight blows with crooked sticks. So that's encouraging for pastors and for future pastors. So if the listener is thinking about, you know, going to seminary, about preparing for pastoral ministry, please don't think that God can only use fully, wholly sanctified instruments. Because were that the case, God would have no instruments. <laughs> that's right.
2: And one of his greatest pastors, missionaries, is the Apostle Paul. And he was constantly aware of, but for the grace of God, I go, even if I labored hard or work hard, oh, no, it's not me. It was the grace of God. He experienced that grace.
1: He was an active organizer of violent persecution of Christians. And God used him as a minister to do remarkable things. And God is using you in Grand Rapids. You have been there 25 years. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. That is remarkable to be in one congregation for 25 years. That just doesn't happen very much anymore. Can you summarize a little bit what that experience has been like to be in the same congregation for 25 years? What has the effect been of ministering in the same place for so long
2: Scott that's a very good question a hard question because on one hand I'm stunned just to hear it because I really never take the time to dwell on that it's just so many things that are in front of you every day you gotta You've got to do you got this meeting you got this th- you got that you got sermons you're writing preparing
1: Catechism right you're teaching catechism every week to every other every other every week every other week from kids 90 from- kids third grade all the way up high school so you haven't farmed Mm -hmm. that out to other people Mm -hmm. you're doing it yourself doing that
2: two bible studies so that's a big responsibility yeah so i don't really think about but i'll tell you what while we're on this whole topic about the grace of the doctrines god prepares you as a pastor but he also prepares a congregation and my growth and sanctification is dependent also on a church And so it's really a testimony to the church that I have the privilege to serve because they put up with me for 25 years, but they've also been used mightily by God to shape me. I need those elders. I need those kids. I need those families. I need those elderly saints who've matured and grown in grace. It's almost like a marriage in some ways. It's a family. It really is. You
1: really become, Mm -hmm. you know, in a sense, one flesh. You, You are so connected. People don't understand the degree to which a faithful minister is really integrated in Into the lives of his people, Mm -hmm. so that you've seen, you know, grandmas and grandpas, and mom and dad, and kids, Mm -hmm. and now, you know, some of the people who were, you know, young when you
2: started, Mm -hmm. they're now parents. I know I'm baptizing their children, baptizing, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) and marrying some of them now. I know it, and you know, they've watched. I hope and pray and trust they've watched me grow in grace which i think is super super important in the ministry because it's important to teach and preach faithfully but as you know from scriptures you know paul says watch your life and your doctrine closely persevere in them if you do you save both yourself and your hearers So we have that doctrine and life, and very humbling, the Apostle Paul imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? So it's always ongoing call for us, Lord, help me to walk humbly with you so that those whom I serve, teach, preach, pastor, can also see that this is just as much for me and that I'm growing in grace too along with them.
1: And you are in what some people regard as the center of the Reformed universe, at least in North America, Mm -hmm. uh, Grand Rapids. Sometimes Mm -hmm. people even, I think, warmly, in a friendly way, call it G.R. Jerusalem, And yet, it's a city with a real urban center, and there are a lot of people in uh, Grand Rapids who don't know the Lord, and you have opportunity to talk to them in a variety of different settings, as part of your ministry to the Kent County Jail, and just out on the street sometimes, Mm -hmm. uh, talking to people. So. The listener shouldn't assume, well, he's in Grand Rapids, he's in this hermetically sealed city where, you know, where there are a remarkable number of churches, but there still is a significant number of unchurched people in Grand Rapids.
2: Well, Scott, like you said earlier, right, we're all still sinners. doesn't matter where you live, and we all need Christ. And I often remind people, even in our churches growing up, or those come in, I just say, you know, you can be born in a garage. It's not gonna make you a car. Mm. And you could be born and raised even in a really good confessionally reformed church. That's not gonna make you a Christian. You must be born anew. And all of these means of grace are wonderful and good and important, but each and every one of us has to be honest and real with God and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and wonderfully to know the comfort of, you know, Lord's Day One, what is your, it's so personal, right? What is yours as the Apostle Paul? The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's so personal too. And so whether it's Grand Rapids, Sparta, or wherever God calls you, you can just be assured sin is sin. Christ is still the only Savior for the world. And whether you're churched or unchurched, When you come
0: to the cross and you come to the gospel, we need that same grace. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.